I'm Jeff Cohen. Lori Polotnik is the founding director of Momentum, an organization that inspires and empowers women to connect to Jewish values, engage with Israel, and ultimately transform themselves, their families, and their communities. And by the way, they have a men's program too. She's also an educator, speaker, writer, media personality, and Balchuva. She's here today to share the story of her career and Jewish journey. So let's get started. Lori, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So we appreciate you taking some time. And of course, we're going to talk about momentum. But as with all of our guests, we like to get to know the person before their career and personal journey. So tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. Uh, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and um, did not grow up in an observant family. I went to public schools, and that was, you know, basically my life. And so the last person I interviewed from Canada told me that hockey was their religion. So is that the case with your family, too? Yes. A hockey night in Canada was on Saturday night. <laughs> that was our Motse Chavez fever. Before hockey expansion, the Seder would always fall during the Stanley Cup finals. So the joke at our Seder was there weren't four cups. There were five cups because the fifth cup was the Stanley Cup. <laughs> and, and there weren't four questions. There were five questions. The fifth question was, what's the score? And <laughs> anyway, that's that's how I grew up. Okay, so you're a public school kid like me, but what kind of things were you doing Jewish-wise within the home? So we definitely, like, we knew we were Jewish, and I felt like our family was different, but I thought it was because my mother was kind of a hippie in the suburbs and, like, a free spirit. But I see now that we were different because we were Jewish. Like, we had Hanukkah, dreidel, 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 and I told you about our Passover Seder, and we went to shul. We called it shul. We went to a conservative synagogue two or three times a year. We went Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. And if there was a bar mitzvah, we did go to Sunday Hebrew school. You know, it wasn't exactly the most inspiring, exciting place. We called it actually called it Jew jail. Like, oh, it's Sunday. It's Jew jail day. And it was sort of a sentence that you got out of at your bar and bat mitzvah. And my brothers were told, it's funny because my father grew up more traditional than my mother. And my mother grew up, her parents were Russian and communists. And my father grew up in, in they weren't, they weren't Shomer Shabbat, but they were more traditional. So when they got married, he wanted to join an Orthodox shul. And my mother wanted to join a reform temple. And they basically compromised on a conservative synagogue. But again, we didn't go very often. So when I was about eight years old, I think in third grade, my mother sat me and my sister down and said, okay, your brothers have to have bar mitzvahs. My parents said, like, they have to have bar mitzvahs, so they have to keep going. But you have a choice. You can keep going in Hebrew school and have a bat mitzvah, or you don't have to. And I was like, I don't have to do this anymore? I'm out of here. Okay, so my sister and I totally, like, we, like, we ran from it. We broke out of jail. And years and years later, when I was in my early 20s and I was studying in Israel and becoming more observant, my mother came and she was lamenting, like, I sent you to Hebrew school and I, I did my best. And I said, Mom, when I was eight years old, you really respected and trusted my decision about my Jewish education. Now I'm 24 years old. Please trust and respect it now. She said, good one, good one. So let's cover a little bit of what happened between age 8 and 24 to get a sense of how things changed. Did you, as a young kid, know anything about Orthodox Judaism? Were there any Orthodox Jews in your community? Like, what was your exposure at that young age? My mother had a friend, one of her best friends, and the, her sons wore kippahs, and they kept kosher and kept Shabbat. I didn't know what that meant. 
for us, it was like they were so religious. But no, I really didn't know what it meant. Like I, just before my brother's bar mitzvahs, my mother started lighting Shabbat candles and we ate Friday night in the dining room. But there were no blessings and there was nothing going on. For the Seder, often we would also, when I was young, would go to like great aunts and uncles and there was, I don't know what was flying. But no, I really didn't have that exposure. Like the idea that people didn't drive on Shabbat or I had this vague idea that Jewish people who are religious don't eat bacon, but we ate bacon. Like we ate bacon and we ate milk and meat together and we ate shrimp. But at Passover, at Pesach, my mother switched the dishes. Uh-huh. Like it was like, so I had a lot of mixed messages going on. It's amazing how even though we're all the same religion, like when you're raised secular, Orthodox Judaism might as well just be like a totally different religion. Like it's, I'm shocked now that I'm religious, like how little I actually knew or how much time I spent trying to understand people that were the same religion of me, but just practicing it different. I really believe and I've come to understand that Jews don't leave Judaism because of what they know. It's because of what they don't know. And Jews don't turn their back on Israel because of what they know. It's because of what they don't know. And this is the first time in history I heard Malcolm Holmline speak and the first time in history that Jews are not trapped in a country. Like they, they have the freedom. Any Jew in any country can come and go. So it's no longer let my people go. It's let my people know. That could have been the slogan for my podcast, but I won't use it. I'll let you keep that one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so what I find fascinating about your story as I was researching you, it seems that it's your sister who brought Orthodox Judaism into your family for the first time. Is that true? Yes, my sister, my, she's my youngest sister. Like this, I have two older brothers and I have a younger sister. And she, it seemed like out of the blue that she like started keeping Shabbos and keeping kosher. Now that I look back and talking to her, it was much more gradual. But we thought at the beginning it's a phase, but then it didn't go away. And then we got nervous, like maybe it's a cult. And she went off to Israel to learn at some, instead of going to college, she went away to some seminary. Like the whole thing was like, if you would have listed all the crazy things that could have happened in our family, this wouldn't have been on the list. Like this was just like out of the blue. In the end, out of four kids in my family, three of us became very observant. Two of us live in Israel. My sister lives in Muncie. But I have an older brother who, he was the most Jewish of all of us. He ended up marrying somebody who was Catholic and he got married in a church on a Friday night. And it was publicly announced their kids will be raised as Catholics. So I see more and more that, again, without knowledge and without a sense of community, either you're in or you're out. Like, either you're an empowered, inspired, educated Jew, or you disappear, your, or your kids will disappear. But even my brother, my older brother, who got married in the church on Shabbos, told the priest not to say his name. Like, don't say JC. Okay, like, even he had his line. Going back to your sister, like, how old are you when she gets really serious about this? And you're telling me how the family kind of reacted. How did you feel personally about your Judaism? Like, were you being impacted by what she was doing? Like, what were your feelings at the time when she was going through this? When she was going through this, it was a very negative thing in our family. Because my parents were heartsick about it, and they didn't know what was going to be. This was like wild. Like, again, first we thought it was just going to be a phase. And I thought, oh, one. she always looked up to me, so I'm going to sit her down. I'll talk her out of it. But I tried, but she kept, kept strong, which was amazing against all odds. And so it was negative, but it was a factor. Like Judaism was only a factor in our lives three or four times a year. So this was in our face every day. Okay, she had her own kosher cupboard, and every Friday she would leave and go someplace, you know, into the Jewish neighborhood and come back. It became a factor in her life. Even if it was negative, it was there. 
but it's not sending you on your own journey at this point. You're you're a teen still living a secular life, like you're experiencing what she's doing, but you're going about your business the same way that you were raised at this point? Yeah. So she was in high school when this happened. I'm two years older. So I was like graduating. I was going off to college. And so it was almost like something to bring up at parties. Like, oh, my sister is in a Jewish cult. You know, she's becoming an Orthodox Jew. Like, really, it was just like sort of like party chatter. And I remember like I was in Montreal at a certain point at a family simcha because there's a side of my family that's in Montreal. And my sister didn't come to the simcha because it wasn't kosher, it wasn't Shabbos, the whole thing. And I remember my uncle said, hey, I heard your sister's in a cult. And I said, yeah, like your grandmother. (laughs) And like... I don't even know where that came from. Because if you would have asked me two seconds before, I would have said, yeah, she's in a cult. And then I realized at that moment, like, what are we talking about? If we all open up our photo albums, okay, how many generations do you have to go back before everybody, God, kosher, Shabbat, like, like, are you kidding me? And then after 3,500 years, in two generations, it's all gone and it's a cult? Well, if it's a cult, it's a 3,500-year-old cult that inspired two-thirds of the world's religions. So, you know, it's pretty solid cult. It's also amazing you were talking about going back a few generations, like how little we know about our own families, like even just great grandparents and beyond, like how they were carrying themselves in terms of their Judaism. Like unless you really put in the effort, it's hard to figure out just how observant your great grandparents and beyond were. You know, it's I want to share a story. My husband and I got married like this whole my husband was a rabbi de Shatora. We got married and we moved to Toronto, we thought for three years, but we were there for 13 years. And we were, you know, we had guests and they were like the, all these singles on the, on the Shabbat circuit, you know, like they were coming to our house. And this one guy was coming to our house and he said, you know, I go to this other guy's house for Shabbos and I think he's your cousin. I said, you're going to guy's house for Shabbos. He ain't my cousin. Okay. This is, this return to tradition is a phenomenon that happened in my nu- in my nuclear family that as far as I knew that most of my cousins had intermarried. And then he'd go to this other guy's house for Shabbos, this, the guy he was talking about. And he would say, you know, I go to this rabbi's house for Shabbos. I think his wife is your cousin. He goes, if you're going to a rabbi's house, his wife is not my cousin. So he finally got so frustrated. He took us all out for kosher Chinese food. We played Jewish geography. It turns out the guy's my cousin. Okay. <laughs> my father's first cousin's son. His name is Jack. And I was so excited. To, we were so excited to meet each other because when you're on your Jewish journey, you often, like my sister, it's you against the world. And if you find out that your hairdresser's daughter's mailman is Shomer Shabbat, like Mishpacha, come to my table, okay? So when I found out I had a blood cousin who also had this journey, I was so excited to meet him. And he is very into the family tree. I'm not so into, I don't know who's who. And he told me the story of our mutual great-grandmother, my father's mother's mother. She came from a a small town in Poland called Yevansk. And he said that there was, uh, the story in the family is that there was a Rebbe who taught the children Torah in this town. Apparently they weren't paying him very much. And the Rebbe kept saying, like, if you don't pay me more, I have to leave. I can't live on what you're paying me. So either they didn't take him seriously or they didn't have the funds. And one day he put all his possessions in the cart, hitched up the horses and said, I'm out of here. And the story goes in our family that our mutual great-grandmother laid down in front of the horses and said, if our children cannot learn Torah, I don't want to live to see such a world. And it moved the Rebbe so much and it moved the townspeople so much that somehow they got it together and he stayed. So when my cousin Jack was starting on his journey, he told this to his rabbi in Toronto. And the rabbi said, Jack, in the merit of that tzedekah, that righteous woman, 
you came back to Torah and mitzvahs. He goes, but Rabbi, if she was so great, how come I'm the only one in my family who ever returned? And then he met me and my husband and my kids. And he, then he met my brother and his wife and their kids and my sister and her husband and their kids. So the next day I went to my father. I go, Dad, how come you never told me your cousin's son Jack is Shomer Shabbos? He goes, I don't know. I never thought to tell you. And I said, Dad, he told me this unbelievable story about your grandmother in Poland. And I told him the story. He goes, yeah, I grew up knowing that story. I go, Dad, how come you never told me? He goes, I never thought to tell you. And then he thought for a minute. He goes, you know what? You're named after her. So I tell the women who come on Momentum that we are only Jews because our mothers, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our great-great-grandmothers, and all the women back to the time of the Torah lived to be Jews, and some of them died to be Jews. And we're bearing their names, and we're giving their names to our children. And we're all part of this incredible chain of Jewish tradition. But a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. That's beautifully said and so inspiring. I'm starting to see why people are lining up to go on your trips. And, I, and we're going to get some momentum in a minute because I just love what you're saying about it. Let's get back now to your story because when we left it, you were basically a secular teen off to college. So let me give you like a three-part question. Where did you go to school? What were you studying? And what did you think you were going to do career-wise? So I went to St. Clair College of Applied Arts in Windsor, Ontario, and then I went to University of Windsor, and my major was communications. So what did I think I was going to do? So I wanted to go into advertising as a writer. I always wanted to be a writer, and it was my first love, and my parents were like, okay, so you can always write whatever you want on the side, but it'd be good to turn your writing into something more commercial, something that you could make money from. So I became a copywriter, and the actual start of my Jewish journey started with a Christmas commercial that I wrote, because when I, after I graduated college, and then I, I, got, I worked in radio in southwestern Ontario, and I wrote a Christmas commercial that won a national award. And so after I won my award, you know, Jews are very good at Christmas, you know, Irving Berlin. I just found out that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was also written by a Jew. Like, all the, all the great Christmas songs are written by Jews. So... I won this award, and so instead of changing and moving to a bigger market, I decided to quit my job, get a backpack, and go off to Europe because I had my education, I had my award, I had my experience, and I figured I could always come back to this. My mother, as I told you, was a very free spirit kind of hippie, so she raised us with a lot of art and culture growing up, and she traveled, and she was, like, our, our Sundays were, like, going, besides, you know, Jew jail, we, we'd go to, like, art galleries and sketch, and my mother, and so I wanted to see the Mona Lisa, and I wanted to see the Statue of David, I wanted to see the Pacero and the and the Renoir. But I decided, you know what, this is my time. I don't ha- I'm not married, I don't have children, and I'm just going to go see the world. So off I went. And under very strange circumstances, I ended up in Israel, which began my Jewish journey. I had a feeling as you told me about this idea of backpacking through Europe, that somewhere along the way, there's going to be a stop in Israel. And this was going to be a turning point in your story. So let's go into that stop in Israel, what happened and what came about afterward. When I got to Israel, I remember feeling like I was very confused about my Judaism. Somewhere between what my parents gave me and what my sister was doing was me. And I didn't know where that was. And so I figured, like, I'll get to Israel and I'll have clarity. Like, I'll, I'll know. I have clarity. So I remember back then, you actually got off the plane. You stood on the tarmac. Like, there was no terminal. So I remember standing on the tarmac, uh, getting off the plane, standing on the tarmac, waiting to feel Jewish. <laughs> like, like, waiting for clarity. Like, I was going to feel something. 
and I didn't feel anything. And somebody with an Uzi told me to move. And so I moved. Then I, I started traveling around Israel. And I kept waiting to feel Jewish and wanting to feel something and wanting clarity, but I wasn't feeling anything. And I was like, oh, so when I was kept trying to look and to feel something, I wasn't feeling anything. I thought, you know what? Let me just enjoy this country like I enjoyed Italy, like I enjoyed Switzerland, like I enjoyed all the other countries I had gone through, the culture, the art, the music, the wine, like, like everything else. So of course, when I stopped trying to feel something, what happened? I started to feel something. I felt if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. I want to live here forever. And it made no sense. So I left and I went back through Europe and I was writing an article for a Canadian magazine about Canadian women who live abroad. I ended up back in Canada, moved to Ottawa, the capital of Canada, America, as you now know. And <laughs> I got a job in public relations in McDonald's restaurants. So you see my Jewish journey, okay? Classic Jewish journey. Christmas commercial, McDonald's restaurants, Rebitson. So I worked for a year in Ottawa, and then I got something in the mail. Somebody who I had met in my journey around Israel put me on a list for a program called the Jerusalem Fellowships. And so suddenly I got something in the mail that the Jerusalem Fellowship, inviting me to apply to the Jerusalem Fellowships, a six-week study and tour program. This was long before there was Tugley Birthright. And it was an opportunity to go back. Now, I know it was probably there all along, but it just seemed like in that year since I had gotten back, even though I'd gone through all these other countries, it just seemed like every time I opened a newspaper or a magazine or turned on the radio or turned on the television, it was either something about Israel or the Jewish people. And I couldn't get Israel out of my heart. Like of all the countries I had been through, I, there was something that was tugging at me. So I applied for this program. I ended up getting on and I left, and which was crazy because I had just gotten this amazing job. And they said, oh, we'll hold your job. And we're so proud of you and whatever. You got this fellowship. So off I went for this six-week study and tour program. And about three or four weeks in, I also had those feelings of, if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. I want to live here forever. But this time, it made sense. It had something to do with God. It had something to do with the Jewish people being a light unto the nations and our responsibilities for the world. There was something very deep and meaningful going on here. And I had a lot of questions, especially about women's role within Judaism. And I decided after the six weeks were over, most people got on the planes and went back to their lives. I decided I have too many questions. I'm going to extend my trip one week and then another week and another week. And then I quit my job and I stayed. It was, it sounds very like, oh, and then I quit my job. It was the such a big decision. And I had other relationships and things I had to get untangled from. It was not simple. It was the hardest and best decision of my life. And a lot of tears were shed. Then I started in my early 20s, my Jewish education that I left when I was eight years old. And I started asking questions and delving and debating and really trying to figure out. And I have to tell you, I still don't relate to my sister and her life and her community because I thought orthodoxy was my sister and her friends. I still don't relate to them. I really found like dancers and writers and people who I connected to much more. And they were making choices of Jewish commitment. And I had to find my place within it. And it's still not simple for me. I live a little bit of an unorthodox, orthodox life, but I am so, so, so thankful and grateful for my life. I, I have an amazing husband who doesn't just have a lot of knowledge. He has wisdom. He knows how to apply that knowledge. We have five children. Three live in Israel. Two live in the States. We have three little granddaughters. 
And when my first granddaughter was born in Israel, it was like a miracle. Israel wasn't even on my radar, and now I merited to have a granddaughter born in Israel. I'm very, very, very blessed. And so you just brought up your husband, and you referenced him earlier in the interview. How does he come into your life? Is it while you're in Israel? Is it back in Canada? And what's his religious background compared to yours when you meet? So my husband grew up in Chicago. He also did not grow up observing. He went to public school. A Hebrew school for him, the after-school Hebrew school, was called the 13 and Out Club. You go to your 13, <laughs> you've done your time, you're out of there, Okay. When I met my husband all those years later, after he'd been yeshiva for probably about eight years, eight and a half years, like I knew who I was and where I was going. I had been learning for a year and I knew not only that I wanted to live a, a committed Jewish life, but I also found my sort of place in it of the people I related to. But I also, I'm very idealistic and I wanted to take my talents and skills and, and I wanted to help the Jewish people. And I felt like I could in some way. So uh, I met my husband's best friend. He set me up with him, and we got married in Toronto, moved to Israel forever, four and a half months into forever. Aisha Tor in Toronto wanted to hire my husband, so I was pregnant with my first, our first child, and uh, we, so we went on an adventure. We made a three-year commitment, and 13 years later, we were still in Toronto. We started a very different kind of synagogue called the Village Shul, very open to everybody, like an achdut velo achidut kind of place, like unity without uniformity. Like everybody was in growth mode, everybody wanted to learn, but every type of person was there. And that's who we were. Like we didn't like any synagogue, and so we started our own. So at the time that you met, though, where were each of you on the path to becoming observant versus how much of it happened after you met and you grew together? Oh, now my husband was a, was a rabbi already. He was teaching. He was teaching uh, the beginners Gomorrah Shir. He was teaching Rambam. He was already very religious and a, a rabbi at Eshet Torah. I had taken that year to figure out where my commitment was and where I, I fit into all of this. And so we were both very committed. Now, do I say that we haven't grown and changed since our since getting married? Of course, we've grown and changed because the Jewish journey ends at your last breath. So we both have learned and grown, and I think we have a, we're a very great team. I'm the extrovert. I'm much more like the doer. My husband is much more the introvert, and he's really a man of tremendous wisdom. And uh, thank God we're, we're a great team. And you also just said in a previous answer about wanting to take the skills that you had in the business world and apply them in a different way. Is that kind of the backdrop to how Momentum came about? Well, I always say that I'm still in advertising. I just have a better product now. Okay, so what happened was my husband, really Aisha Torah hired my husband. I was not working for Aisha Torah, and, but I was saying to him like, oh, the women need to hear this, the women need that. So I started teaching and I saw that Hashem gave me a gift for communication. I didn't have a lot of knowledge. My husband really spent the first years of our married life teaching me. He went through the Chumash, he went through all the Atariag mitzvahs. Like he really, he saw that Hashem had given me a talent for communication. I just was lacking a lot of the knowledge that he had gained over the years. And so he invested all that time. So, and he would say like, okay, here's the idea. I don't know how to say this to women, but you can figure that out. So I took it and I made it my own and I started teaching and I really enjoyed it. I loved it. And then I started being asked to speak in different cities and, and I started speaking in the States a little bit. And then I started writing books. 
I have a book called Friday Night and Beyond. It's a guide through, walks you through Shabbat from beginning to end. I wrote a book called Remember My Soul, which is about soul in the afterlife. Like I saw that people had gaps in their knowledge, just like I had the gaps. And I had a way of being able to explain it to people in a way they could relate to. So here I was, and then I started becoming a little bit popular. And now I'm going to different countries and speaking because there's a lot of rabbis on the circuit. There's just not a lot of women and women need role models. And I'd go to these countries and I would come back to the community and invite me back. And I saw that Jewish communities were going in the wrong direction. They were not going up, they were going down. And I knew in our work in Canada, and then when we had moved to the States, that a, a community lives and dies by where the women are at. And women need role models. And if you inspire women, you inspire a family. And if you inspire enough families, you inspire a community. If you inspire enough communities, you can change the world. And I would get these crazy job offers. I'd come home and say to my husband, like, hey, you want to be the chief rabbi of Costa Rica? Comes with maids. I don't speak Spanish. I'm like, Yaakov, you're smart. It comes with maids, okay? And a driver and a house. And like, they're offering us the world. But obviously, we're not moving to Costa Rica. We're not moving to Johannesburg. And we're not moving to Atlanta. So I went back to, we were living in the Washington, D.C. area in Rockville, Maryland. And I invited seven other women who I knew from the D.C. area to go away and to brainstorm with me on could we come up with an idea to help these communities? What, what it could be the game changer for the Jewish people, and I knew through my experience that it was going to happen through women. So I went away, and I these seven other women, I have to tell you, we went away to Utah, because one of them owns a gorgeous place in Utah, because I knew instinctively, if we're going to come up with a home run idea, it's we, we got to get out of our life. And magic happened. It was like, let's come together, even though we're very diverse, and let's find our commonality and build something on that. And one of the first stages that we went through is we had to ask ourselves, what are my core values? And then we had to write down, what would my life look like if I lived them? What would my family look like? What would my community look like? What would the Jewish people look like? What would the world look like? And when we shared our values, we found the ones we had in common, and we established what we called at the time the Jewish Women's Renaissance Project, JWRP. Then we brainstormed on what would be the vehicle to bring these values to fruition. And we came up with probably 100 ideas, and we debated the ideas, and we advocated for the ideas we believed in, and four rose to the top. This idea, Taglit Ligimhot, this birthright for mothers, this one took off like a rocket. I have never, ever, ever been involved in anything that took off like this. Everybody was like, you're right, it's the mom, where have we been? Everybody knows that the mother is, in general, the greatest influencer in the family, and yet she was the most underserved. There's all these programs for like college and young professionals, but again, it's the mom. It's the mom. So the first year in 2008 and 2009, we brought 300 women. It's targeted for Jewish women who are very, very weakly identified they are at risk, them and their children, falling off the Jewish map. They came from Canada, United States, and Mexico. And then the next year, we brought 600. And the next year, we brought 900. And then Israel's Ministry of Diaspora Affairs, the Israeli government, called us. Like We were like, do you think the Israeli government would ever like, fund us like they do birthright? People go, they'll never fund you. You're not enough this. You're too much that. And they came to us. 
they went over our data. We're very data-driven and we're moving the needle. Like we really saw that in so many areas that we're moving the needle. People are going back, putting their kids into Jewish day school. People are going back, lighting Shabbat candles. People are going back, joining synagogues. People are going back, volunteering in the community. People are going back, moving into the community. We partner with organizations around the world now because the, the Israeli government said, double your numbers, get into Eastern Europe, and we'll help back you. So I flew to Germany and Hungary and the former Soviet Union. So we now have brought over 22,000 women from 35 countries, and we have an annual budget of $18.5 million, and we now have over 60 people who work for us. Our board is very diverse in every way, politically, religiously, geographically. Our professional team is very diverse. Our partnerships are diverse. We have found the values that we can all rally around. And I'm telling you, it is magic. It's so beautiful to see the sisterhood. I can't even tell you. So then a few years in, we started bringing men because the way I kept saying, my husband has, has to hear this, my <laughs> husband, my husband. So we started bringing men. So if you think about the word momentum, okay, the first three letters are mom. And then it's men. And in the middle, it's me. And the men come, and most of them are husbands of women who've already come on the trips. And I have never seen men so emotional in my life. On the last men's trip we had, one guy came up to us and said, I just want to tell you, I'm not crying like a baby. I'm crying like a man. And we give them tools to strengthen their marriages and to be the father that they really want to be. And to really feel part of a people we're the Jewish people, and we just have to find the values that we can all rally around together. I have to tell you what I really love about your story is not only is your personal journey inspiring, but then you took it and said, how can I pay it forward to others? And not on a small scale, like what you took this from that conversation and the meeting you had in Utah to where it is today is really, really unbelievable. So I have to close by asking you, given how far you took it from Utah to today, Someone like you has got to have plans from today to the future of how big you want to see this grow and what the next stage is. So where, where are things headed for you? So our plans in the next three years are to double our numbers. The challenge of COVID came with an opportunity. What was the opportunity? Again, to reach people online, but also there's a pent-up desire for travel and for meaningful travel. People want to process like the trauma we've been through. And when Israel played reverse psychology, you can't come. So now people want to come. And the borders opened and the streets are flooded with people now. It's incredible. So we believe that the opportunity is now to capture this pent-up desire. So we're, we have a super fund that we're trying to raise the, the money for in order to be ready for it. And uh, we're on our way to that. And leadership development. And that's another big push that we're doing is, is on leadership. And if we're going to grow big, we have to have a, a plan for sustainability, like fiscally. And so there's a lot of work that we need to do. And the best advice I got when I started this was from my friend, Barry Feld, who lives in Cleveland. And I told her, I had just gotten back from Utah in 2008, and I was standing on the front porch of my house in Rockville, Maryland. And Barry called, and I picked it up, and, and she goes, hey, what's going on? And I told her, I just went away, and we came up with this idea, and I think this idea, it's like a birthright for moms. And she said, Lori, just don't get in Hashem's way. It was the best advice. That is such a beautiful one to end on. I have to tell you, our listeners who are thinking about you saying you're planning to double everything, probably have faith that you're going to more than double it when they hear your passion and how committed you are to this. So I have no doubt things are going to work out in your favor. And amen, I just want to say, amen, amen. <laughs> so Lori, I just want to say I love your story. I love the way you're inspiring people. And thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. 
To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.